My name is Lieutenant Colonel Gozzi Dusty. I'm a consultant physician in sexual health and HIV medicine based in Birmingham and I'm the Defence Specialist Advisor, so I lead the UK Armed Forces Sexual Health and HIV Service. I'd like to introduce Dr James Bingham. He is a retired consultant physician in genital urinary medicine and was based at Guy's and St Thomas's in London. He was the civilian consultant advisor to the Army in genital urinary medicine for many years and was in the Army Reserves, previously known as the Territorial Army or TA. He has a wealth of knowledge as well as a keen interest in medical history. So we're talking about the origins of our current sexual health services as we know them today and the impact of the UK military in their development. I think what's interesting is that a lot of people both within the military and even those working within the UK's uh, sexual health specialty are probably unaware of the beginnings of our specialty and the sexual health clinics that we have today. So the phrase then was venereal disease or VD and that was taken to mean gonorrhea or syphilis both of which were associated with huge morbidity and mortality from both the infections themselves, but also from what was used to try and treat them in the pre-antibiotic era. But the origins of our sexual health service setup actually came from, well, came about from the need to protect the health of the British military troops, but also to protect the health of the general population from the military. So, James, how did the military get so involved with venereal disease and its management? Well, the... Soldiers and sailors throughout time have been common bedfellows with sexually transmitted infections, young people away from home for long periods of time, etc. There's lots about this in the literature, and without going into detail, Julius Caesar had people with symptoms flogged, Richard III had soldiers who contracted the pox hanged. Um, the great pox epidemic resulted from the siege of Naples in 1494, and really before quartermastering, Armies were like a plague of locusts ravaging the countryside and its inhabitants. So, uh, in, in, in the mid-19th century, the, the British government realized that uh, there was a problem with sexually transmitted infections in, in, in the army, and in the navy for that matter as well. So they uh, passed some legislation uh, called the Contagious Diseases Acts, uh, and this... These were not effective at all. Uh, they, they victimized the prostitutes and other women who had sex with the soldiers, and they allowed these women to be hospitalized forcibly in lock hospitals. Eventually they were repealed, but it happened in other parts of the empire as well, particularly in India. Uh, and uh, so that was not a great start to uh, political interference or political attempts to try and control infection. Uh, in the Boer War, for instance, uh, there were 20,000 other ranks who got venereal disease out of a, a population of British and Dominion troops deployed of over 450,000. So you can see it was really quite a big problem. But the moralistic approach at the times uh, didn't uh, allow proper discussion to take place. So when the British Expeditionary Force went to France in 1914 at the start of the First World War, they didn't take with them any arsenicals for mercury to treat syphilis and no irrigation uh, equipment to treat urethritis. And control was attempted by lectures on personal hygiene and medical examination of prostitutes. Uh, Lord Kitchener, the, the Secretary of State for War, uh, uh, produced a little pamphlet which was given to every soldier in which it said, your duty cannot be done unless your health is sound. So keep constantly on your guard against any excesses. 
In this new experience, you may find temptations in both wine and women. You should entirely resist both temptations, and while treating all women with perfect courtesy, you should avoid any intimacy. But of course, this exhortation has absolutely no effect. And at no time at all, the new cases of VD ran completely out of control. And they had to set up a stationary hospital in Le Havre, initially with 250 beds, soon going up to 1,000 beds and subsequently to over 3,000 beds. Mm. Uh, at that stage, um, Colonel Harrison was brought in. Um, so, yeah, uh, James, it's interesting you talked about Lord Kitchener's um, appeal letter, so appealing to the moral nature. And although, as you said, it was an immense failure as the VD rates continued to soar, um, I think there's probably something in this, because in current times we've seen further tabled amendments for changes to the Children and Social Work Bill to see relationships and sex education as a mandatory requirement in schools so that, you know, more than just the biological, physiological, practical aspects are covered. And I suppose that leaflet in the pay packets wasn't quite the right learning environment, perhaps, but looking more towards discussions around attitudes to sex and sexual health and respect and relationships in whatever form they take does actually need more attention generally. And it's something our government is certainly focusing on, uh, particularly in this era of social media and remaining safe online. So interesting, you were also talking about the punishments and the punishments that were firstly reserved more for the sex workers and not for the military troops. But of course, this moved on as a, time, as a preventative measure to um, uh, punishments for the serving soldiers and the sailors. They tried to enforce inspections of serving soldiers, so inspecting them for signs of infection, just like they did to the sex workers some years previously. And there were also punishments, so punishments for the soldiers or sailors if they were found to be concealing signs of VD, but also punishments if they had to be admitted to the field hospitals for treatment, so things like docking their pay or stopping their their leave for a year at a time or extra fines, loss of rank, loss of privileges. Um, I think that's quite interesting, really, that other armed forces probably realised a lot quicker that this threat of punishment was uh, was not an effective prevention method. Um, and you'd think that the hierarchical structure with strict codes of discipline and ways of enforcing punishments would seem like an easy control to sort of control this sexual behaviour, but it didn't really work at all. And I think from historical experience, we look at um, what the troops, not just in our armed forces, but in others in trying to conceal their infections and accessing alternative avenues of treatment. And so it's dangerous back then with the quacks and who were not medically trained, but of course were promising cures, um, but also an issue now when we've got access to the internet and in many countries throughout the world, easy access to potentially unregulated, unnecessary treatments. And we have lots of problems now, as you know, with uh, antibiotic resistance and multi-drug resistant gonorrhea, for example. Back in the time of the First World War, of course, the politicians, needed to say, got involved. And they brought in a Regulation 40D of the Defence of the Realm Act, which made it a criminal offence for a woman with VD to have sex with members of uh, His Majesty's forces. And uh, the question was, would the doctors report these cases? And on the whole, they didn't, so the Regulation 40D didn't really work. Um, but uh, we were very slow to... You were mentioning the various educational efforts that were made, but we were very slow... To, because of the political interference, we're very slow to actually take sens sensible measures. I mean, the Germans under were being advised by Albert Neiser of Nigeria, gonorrhea fame, 
and uh, he was the advisor to the German army, and he told them that they needed to provide condoms and calomel ointment, which was, was a mercurial containing ointment, to be issued to all troops at the outset of the war. It took it took till about 1917 for us to uh, to, uh, to introduce what they called packets, which were containing, I think, the calomel and the condoms. But the U.S. Army uh, wouldn't even provide the packets. This was an advice from Franklin D. Roosevelt, the naval secretary at the time. So the politicians tried, but they probably weren't really very successful. Yes, and uh, what about the prophylaxis stations? Because, of course, they then tried to implement that, and this didn't really prove to be very popular, did it? Yes, yes, well, the Americans said you had to get there within three hours of contact. The British left it to about 24 hours. Uh, so it, 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 uh, I mean, there was an attempt, and they were certainly set up in Colonel Harrison, certainly arranged that these were made available in, in every barracks, both at home and in France. I don't know what happened in the Middle East, but certainly in France and in, uh, and in, in the home in the UK, these yeah. prophylactic stations were made available. Yes, but quite uh, underutilized, um, I'm guessing, because it was probably very painful when <clears throat> men were asked to administer lots of caustic agents down their urethra. Um, yes. And probably slightly humiliating with people watching as well, because, of course, they had trained attendants watching. Well, the sure we've all seen the pictures of Colonel Harrison's bell tents <laughs> where he had these things set up in France. <laughs> and there was a sort of a sheet of of tentage in between each person, so there was a sort of minimal degree of privacy. Yeah. The British, the, the Americans called them prophylactic stations. We called them venereal ablution rooms. Yeah. And uh, as you say, they had to wash the genitals with soap and water and irrigate the urethra with potassium permanganate, which they, because it was pink, they called it, the troops called it pinky-panky. <laughs> I suppose after, well, you can imagine what. Anyway, in 1917, they eventually got provided with condoms, which must have made a slight difference, but nevertheless, um, the incidence of uh, of uh, AVD stayed pretty high. In 1918, for instance, we had about 18,000 troops in hospital at any given time in France with an ex-sexually transmitted infections. If you think about that, that's a colossal number. It's equivalent to about 17 battalions. And if you were being treated for gonorrhea with irrigations, it, uh, you were in hospital for four weeks. If you were being treated for syphilis, you were in hospital for five weeks. So you can see what a heavy burden this must have been. That's right. And at the time, more military troops were being taken out, really, for gonorrhea and syphilis than were from battlefield wounds, which is um, in- incredible to, to think about. Yes. Well, this has happened in many wars. I mean, yes. uh, even as recently as the Vietnam War, uh, 50% of the U.S. Army in Vietnam at one stage had a sexually transmitted infection. So there's nothing new under the sun, and it just carries on, really. But you can say much more about this than me, because obviously the problem is it's completely different today in the era of modern treatment and modern diagnostic methods. Yes, it is. But So you mentioned uh, Colonel Harrison and his staff and Colonel Harrison going to run the, the VD hospital uh, in France um, during the start of World War One, So he sounds like he handpicked his specialist team that initially deployed out to France to run this hospital. He, he did. Because he had been involved in... He, he wasn't initially very interested in venereal disease, but he, he got involved before the First World War in a rotten, a rotten place called the Rotten Row Hospital in 
London, which was associated with some of the Guards regiments. And uh, uh, he took an interest and got involved in some of the laboratory work on that and the early trials of the uh, of the arsenical uh, treatments that had just come on the market at that time. And uh, so when he got to France uh, in 1915, he uh, realized he needed to get some expert people along with him because the whole hospital, although it was large, was being very inefficiently managed. And so he recruited the staff from the Rotten Row Hospital who he had trained, and they became the first staff, proper staff of the of the VD hospital in France. And then he set up, as you know, uh, proper training for people coming into the field, not just doctors, but also uh, medical orderlies who did the work. And these, these people actually came back into civilian life after the war and were the backbone of the civilian VD service after it was set up in 1917. Yeah. I think his, his ideas really about dealing with sexual health issues and infection where they presented rather than evacuating them you know, further away meant that the army in particular has made sure that there was adequate training of their doctors before deploying. We saw this happen in World War II and subsequent to that, what we then see is um, the sexual health nurse specialist training in the army. We still have a sexual health nurse specialist uh, to this day, which for many years, that was quite ahead of its time with a nurse specialist as independent practitioners being deployed, undertaking autonomous roles in the UK and overseas bases and also on deployments. And so it's taken some time for the civilian service, as we know it today, to catch up in that respect. But what we now see in civilian sexual health services are clinical nurse specialists, nurse prescribers, advanced nurse practitioners, you know, senior trained nurses who can now work more independently under a secure clinical governance structure and that ultimately increases clinical access. And this is great for our patient care. So this is what we now see with our current UK Armed Forces. We've now got troops in so many different locations, both here in the UK and throughout the world. And with our armed forces now working in a different way, using troops in a more adaptable way, that emphasis again has been on ensuring that troops will be able to access a basic level of sexual health care wherever they are. And that means training and maintaining support to more healthcare professionals, such as um, those within primary health care. So not just doctors, but just as Colonel Harrison did, but other healthcare professionals like nurses are combat medical technicians and medical assistants so these are a bit like paramedics but they've also got primary care role too um, and actually that's also now what we're seeing in our civilian services as well we've got the delivery of sexual health more in community locations with training of primary care and pharmacists for example and we see BASH um, has really kept head of the game here by continuing to develop their specific training and competencies for non-sexual health specialists and um, we see that in the BASH uh, stiff training so what about um, partner notification and contact tracing? I mean, how did the military services at home and when abroad deal with these challenges? Well, in the First World War, the, the RAMC, the Royal Army Medical Corps, liaised under Colonel Harrison's instruction uh, very closely with the French Ministry of Health. Mm. And uh, they, sent, they, they sent out almost policemen in civilian clothes to pick up the woman that the soldiers had uh, identified so that they could uh, uh, treat them, or at least examine them and treat them if necessary. So that was, that was a sort of a start. Uh, but in, in the 1960s, uh, in, in Singapore, for instance, this is going on you know, several decades later, uh, they had a sort of a rogues gallery. This was a photographs of all the local prostitutes in Boogie Street in, in Singapore. And... Uh, 
when a soldier came in with a sexually transmitted infection, he was asked to go through this book of photographs and identify which one it was. And if they could, if he could do that, then the military police went down and picked the lady up, brought her in for treatment. And no, there wasn't nothing. There was no criminal offence involved, just to get her treatment. And of course, um, in in Thailand, in more recent times, uh, the intervention of the Thai government to providing condoms in brothels massively reduced the incidence of sexually transmitted infections, particularly HIV, in Thai troops and in the Thai Thai civilian population. So, yeah, I mean, what we now do with partner notification and contact tracing, I mean, I think it's all about communication, as Colonel Harrison and uh, and others showed, so more communication between military and uh, civilian health services working a bit more effectively together. So, you know, when we had sexual health and specialists were uh, based in a few garrisons in the UK, this worked quite well by having key point of contacts. But we don't have this system anymore. But actually, with that previous setup, we still didn't cover the majority of the areas that troops were based from all three services. Um, so what we've tried to do now is to upskill the uh, defence primary healthcare region, so our healthcare professionals there, and also starting to develop closer work relationships with the civilian health uh, sexual health services in those locations. So I think there's more work to do here, but um, I think it's all about working together. That's key, and we, we see that from all the from, from history too. So what about uh, legislation uh, surrounding same-sex relationships? Because, in fact, it was British colonial legislation um, that created the criminalisation of same-sex relationships. Um, and this, of course, persists to this day in many of the Commonwealth countries. I mean, these are all nations that were part of the old British Empire. Yes, I think that's the case. I mean, if you look at Africa, many African countries, it, homosexuality is illegal and you can be beaten up or killed or imprisoned. It's an uh, appalling situation. As you say, Colonel, it does go back to the British imperial times. But whereas we've moved on, some of these countries haven't. That's right, and that we've decriminalised some of this legislation. I mean, that started occurring in England in 1967, but you know, still at this time, it, well, when we're recording, so today, there are still at 39 of the 53 Commonwealth countries with anti-gay legislation, You know, as you say, carrying really severe penalties. So in the British military, the ban on being allowed to serve in the UK armed forces if you have same-sex partners was lifted in the year 2000. Um, however, since then, all three services have, for several years now, worked closely with Stonewall and continue to do so as part of their Diversity Champions programme. And in 2015, the Army, Royal Navy and RAF all came in Stonewall's top 100 employers list. And last year, in 2016, Navy came 10th. The Army came 32nd in that top employers 100 list. So all three services are continuing to work hard to promote that ethos of inclusivity right the way through the art military. And importantly, are, are being open about how they're doing and what they need to do to improve. Uh, and armed forces personnel have been allowed to take part in gay pride events in uniform. For example, they can recruit at these events uh, and civil partnerships are recognised um, in the same vein as marriage. Sure, I'm sure you'll say that Colonel Harrison set up really the first decent STI service really in the world, in France. And he transferred that and its principles to the UK and its civilian life and into his model clinic that he set up at St. Thomas's Hospital. And everything that's happened since then has been based really on what he did and his attitude. 
That's right. Um, and it's led to us now having that free accessible sexual health service that we have today and the healthcare professionals that are really passionate about what they do and the service they deliver um, from the examples from Colonel Harrison and, uh, and the rest. Right. So thank you very much, James, for joining me. It's a pleasure. So this is one of two podcasts about the centenary celebration of the Venereal Disease Act uh, of 1917. So you can find these articles um, about the last 100 years of sexual health on the website uh, for the journal Sexually Transmitted Infections uh, on sti.bmj.com. So please have a listen to the other podcasts too.